This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Tonight on 360, new reporting about Alexei Navalny's death in a Russian gulag and Donald Trump's condolences for himself. Also tonight, Wisconsin former state Republican chairman claims he and his fellow fake electors were tricked by the Trump campaign. And later, why disgraced ex-Congressman George Santos is suing Jimmy Kimmel. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Alexei Navalny's widow, Yulia, spoke out today about her husband's death and possible murder in Vladimir Putin's gulag. I should not have been in this place. I should not have recorded this video. There should have been another person in my place. But this person was killed by Vladimir Putin. Three days ago, Vladimir Putin killed my husband, Alexei Navalny. Putin killed the father of my children. Putin took away the most precious thing I had. Yulia Navalnaya today talking about the 47-year-old man who a day before his sudden death seemed in good spirits, looking thin but energetic and animated in a video court appearance. Navalny was no stranger to hardship. He returned to Russia knowing he would likely be arrested, put on trial and imprisoned. This after he had been poisoned. Even in death, he is inspiring others. Some Russians have risked arrest and beatings to simply leave flowers at makeshift memorials, and leaders around the world are hailing him for his stance on human rights. But to some, he's no martyr, any more than his widow and children are worth even perfunctory condolences, let alone normal expressions of human decency. Here's what Donald Trump posted online today. The sudden death of Alexei Navalny has made me more and more aware of what is happening in our country. It is a slow, steady progression with crooked, radical left politicians, prosecutors and judges leading us down a path to destruction. Open borders, rigged elections and grossly unfair courtroom decisions are destroying America. We are a nation in decline, a failing nation. There's no mention of Navalny's wife, no mention of Vladimir Putin. He did not compare himself to Navalny the way he once did to the late Nelson Mandela. Instead, his followers did, most notably New York Republican Congressman Lee Zeldin, who tweeted, as the world reflects on the murder of Alexei Navalny at the hands of Putin, it's worth remembering the Democrats are actively doing Biden's bidding as they also try to imprison his chief political opponent, Donald Trump, remove him from the ballot and ensure he dies in prison. Now, for the record, as Mr. Zeldin should know, grand juries made up of ordinary Americans, Democrats and Republicans alike, handed up indictments using evidence obtained by lawful subpoenas and search warrants authorized by judges and upheld by other judges, including Republican appointees, even including Trump appointees. Any due process Alexei Navalny got was ceremonial, if not purely incidental. But Donald Trump's message today did not merely reflect his indifference to the death and possible murder of Russia's leading dissident or even his obsession with himself and his own legal troubles. In not criticizing Vladimir Putin or even mentioning his name, 
Donald Trump sent a message to the Russian dictator, something he also did a few weeks ago when he said this. If we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. That was the former president of the United States openly treating NATO as some kind of a protection racket, sending a clear message to our allies as well as Vladimir Putin, which should come as no surprise. Even with Ukrainian forces literally running out of shells and bullets and Russia over the weekend capturing new territory, he's been telling congressional Republicans to block new aid to Ukraine. Republican whose part, Republicans whose party used to consider Russia a threat even when it wasn't rolling tanks into a neighbor, which is made for some strange gymnastics in this strange new world. Case in point, House Speaker Mike Johnson, who put out this statement shortly after Navalny's death, and I'm quoting now, Vladimir Putin is a vicious dictator, and the world knows he is likely directly responsible for the sudden death of his most prominent political opponent, Alexei Navalny. He went on to say, this is the latest attempt to send a message to those working to confront Moscow's aggression. Certainly sounds tough, which might lead you to believe that he and his members are among those hardworking confronters of Russian aggression. But in fact, he and the rest of the House are on a two-week recess. And he doesn't want to bring Ukraine legislation to the floor because it would weaken his speakership and no doubt anger Donald Trump. Or for that matter, a substantial number of his members, as former Republican Congressman Liz Cheney pointed out on CNN this weekend. We have to take seriously the extent to which, um, you know, you've now got a Putin wing of the Republican Party. Uh, I believe the issue this election cycle is making sure the Putin wing of the Republican Party does not take over the West Wing of the White House. Republican challenger Nikki Haley expressed similar sentiments on the campaign trail in South Carolina. I don't know why he keeps getting weak in the knees when it comes to Russia. But I'll tell you what, Russia's not getting weak in the knees because what we're seeing is now they're starting to put soldiers around the Baltic countries. Russia said once they take Ukraine, Poland and the Baltics are next. Those are NATO countries and that immediately puts America at war. She went on to say that preventing such a war is her number one goal. As for the former president, though, his number one goal this weekend apparently was selling sneakers. This is something I've been talking about for 12 years, 13 years, and I think it's going to be a big success. He's been talking about it for 12 years. He's talking about these at $399 a pop. He's also selling cheaper sneakers. Not cheaper looking, of course, that would not be possible. Less expensive, I should say. The announcement coming just a day after a New York judge ordered him to pay hundreds of millions of dollars in penalties for business fraud, a bill he presumably cannot lace up his golden sneakers and run away from. Allies, countries under attack by dictators, and the fallen heroes who stand against them are easier that way. More now on Alexei Navalny's death and his family's search for answers from CNN's Melissa Bell. Words of defiance by Alexei Navalny's wife as his mother searches for answers, traveling to the Arctic town nearest to his last prison, but leaving with very little, the location of her son's body still unknown. Navalny's spokesperson confirming on Monday that his body will not now be released to the family for at least another 14 days. The cause of his sudden death, according to Russian investigators, still not determined. What is known is that his final moments came 
in Russia's Arctic. After taking a walk in what's known as the Polar Wolf Colony, where he was moved just weeks earlier, he's said to have collapsed outdoors. Less than a day after he was seen on video during a court appearance, looking skinnier, but still with a lively glimmer in his eye. And less than 48 hours after he wished his wife, Yulia, a happy Valentine's Day on social media. I love you more and more, becoming his final words to the world. Yulia, now a widow, says that Russian authorities are hiding Navalny's body as they wait for, quote, traces of another of Putin's Novichoks to disappear. The very same poison that nearly killed him in 2020. Traces of Novichok were confirmed by a German lab while Navalny was convalescing in Berlin. His return to Moscow, another example of the courage that has continued to shine through his many letters written from prison as he stood defiantly against Vladimir Putin. Like the series of exchanges with the Soviet dissident Natan Sharansky, obtained by the Free Press, in which Navalny writes... I understand that I am not the first, but I really want to become the last, or at least one of the last, of those who are forced to endure this. In another letter he writes, One day in Russia there will be what was not, and will not be what it was. His hope, in so many of the letters, contagious. As in the one he wrote to an American journalist which was obtained by the Russian media outlet Holod. I'm doing well and I don't regret anything, he writes. And don't regret it and don't be upset. Everything will be fine. And even if it isn't, we will be consoled by the fact that we were honest people. The ink of his pen, one of his final acts of staining Putin's power. Not only to be remembered in history books, but even now being amplified by his wife to carry his most subversive message yet. That his courage and anger should live on. And Melissa Bell joins us now from Paris. I mean, we've seen protests, people being detained inside Russia since Navalny's death. Um, do, do protests continue or are there fears that this is the beginning of a larger crackdown? Well, there had been, the thinking had been, Anderson, that any uh, further tightening of the repression, and remember that it's been fairly considerable ever since the invasion of Ukraine began, would only happen in a month's time after the election that is likely to see him get this fifth term that he seeks, uh, that the semblance of a democratic uh, operation process would be allowed to go on. But of course, that hasn't happened. And that tightening uh, of the repression further still has happened pretty dramatically over the course of the weekend. Still, though, people head out, try and put flowers down. No sooner are they laid uh, then they're taken away by masked men. Uh, but people have done their best to try and pay tribute to that courage, to try and share uh, some of their grief. And that's also been reflected outside of Russia, some of the, with some of the outrage that's been expressed, Anderson, uh, here in Europe. Uh, countries from Germany to the United Kingdom, Sweden, Spain, uh, have been summoning their Russian ambassadors in the wake of this killing. And there are suggestions uh, that the European Union may seek uh, to impose further sanctions on Russia, this time targeting the internal repression. I think what we've seen both inside Russia and outside is an important reminder of exactly what Alexei Navalny was, what his huge power was, Anderson. He had an ability to speak 
to Russians about corruption inside and to the West about democracy outside, that it appears is going to go much further uh, than uh, simply his life. He continues to bear that message and resoundingly so, Anderson. Right. Melissa Bell, thank you so much. You saw in Melissa's piece some of the letters that Alexei Navalny exchanged in prison. There were more, including with Kerry Kennedy, the daughter of Robert F. Kennedy. This is Navalny in one of those letters to Kerry Kennedy talking about a biography of her dad that uh, he had read. It was a personal revelation for me, Navalny wrote, reading this book and understanding the story of RFK in the context of Epoch and the tragical events of his life. Honestly, I've been crying two or three times while reading, but please don't tell anyone. Kerry Kennedy joins me now. Kerry, thanks for being with us. Can you just share a little bit about I mean, when you first heard about Alexei Navalny's death, what went through your mind? Well, you know, this is a terrible tragedy. He was the um, Mandela of Russia. He, but not only of Russia, but of the whole world in a way, because he carried forth the vision of accountability for crimes, of stopping corruption, and most of all, free expression um, of bolstering civic space. You know, at RFK Human Rights, we work on uh, civic space, the ability of people to criticize their government without fear of repression all over the world. And he really was the leader of that. I, I read the full letter that he had, had sent to you um, after he read the, the book about your dad. And I know you recommended a, a Arthur Schlesinger book as well. Um, you sent Navalny a poster with an image of your dad with a quote from one of his speeches, speeches and a drawing also that we're showing. Navalny wrote back to you in part, I hope one day I'll be able to hang it on the wall of my office. What was it like to, to, to know that he was so moved by your father's life and by, by his experience and to have that exchange with him, to have that contact with him? Well, you know, I think he was known as somebody who was uh, constantly reading. He he was reading ten books at a time. He was he read over forty five books last year alone. He had this incredibly in, insatiable appetite for information, curiosity, and a determination to share his views and um, and he wanted everyone to be able to share their views. And that is, uh, that's going to be really the outstanding legacy of his life, his fight for democracy, his fight for free expression. And I think we owe it to him to take action, not to just let this moment go, but to take actions that we can as a government, as for me, as a human rights organization and the individuals um, to create change. How, I mean... How the the idea of letting Vladimir Putin get away with this, not holding him accountable. I mean, he has poisoned other people as as well. Uh, do you think if the world had stood up to him sooner, we wouldn't be in Absolutely. this position right now? Absolutely. If if the world had um, held Putin accountable for the uh, poisoning of President Viktor Yushchenko of Ukraine. Um, or of Navalny the first time, or when he killed Magnitsky, or when he committed atrocities in Chechnya, in Georgia, in uh, Syria, in Crimea. Uh, Navalny would be alive right now. And in fact, he might be alive 
if we had sent Ukraine the, the funds that it needs right now so desperately to, to stop the Russians. Yeah. Um, so that's the main thing RFK Human Rights is going to work on in light of this is accountability. But I think the United States government, um, in addition to working on accountability, uh, the crime of aggression in Ukraine and uh, the, the the killing of Navalny, um, I think that the U.S. government should hold that group of 400 um, oligarchs accountable. Right now, they and their families are free to walk all over Europe, and they are. You can find them skiing in Gestad mm. uh, or sunning in Saint-Tropez. My God, yeah. why are we allowing that to happen? Yeah. And, um, and then I think we really have to be concerned about uh, Navalny's lawyers and about the opposition political figures who are thrown in jail simply because they're supporting Ukraine. Yeah. And then finally, I think something that all of us can do in any little way that we can is support the Navalny Foundation. And you can find that online. Yeah. Kerry Kennedy, I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. Thank you. There's breaking news on the war in Ukraine, where Russian troops now control, control a long-contested town. And new shelling is being heard in Kherson, where CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is tonight. Nick, what's happening on the battlefield as Ukrainian officials wait to see whether the U.S. Congress is going to approve more aid? Yeah, be in no doubt that freeze, that slowdown in aid is having a clear impact on the battlefield now. It's no longer theoretical. Morale has already suffered. The fall of Avdivka over the weekend, clearly, uh, and you hear some of the shelling here in the town we're in, her son, a reminder of the reality people are going through. Avdivka really, officials saying, fell because of a lack of ammunition and the feeling that Ukrainians are suffering now acutely on the front lines and the fall of Avdivka may be the first of a number to come. A sight not seen for a while, a Russian flag going up over Ukraine. But Ukraine's withdrawal announced on Saturday from Avdivka means more than the loss of a town bitterly fought over since Russia first invaded a decade ago. It is perhaps the first sign a delay in US aid spells death and loss here. These images released of their last defenses rushing into support. Under fire from a resurgent Russia who President Zelensky says sent seven Russian troops to die for every dead Ukrainian. This is what it was like in the basement, defending down to the last, treating the injured in the darkness, yet aware their options, their ammo, their chances were ebbing. Shelling, endless. It spoiled my drink, this soldier complains. A commander clear Monday why this happened. We didn't have enough people, he says. We didn't have enough shells. We didn't have enough possibilities to throw them back. Russia's Ministry of Defence released images of their final onslaught on that coke plant and what they claimed were the casualties inflicted on Ukrainians as they tried to flee in the dark. Other images and reports emerged Monday in Ukraine of the fate of their wounded, one of whom called home in his last moments. Allegations that, in the horrifying rubble here, both the wounded were left behind by Ukraine, but also shot dead in cold blood by Russian forces. 
Russian drone images of their spoils released, again displaying their odd pride over the rubble. Zelensky may have to get used to more of this. Putting on a brave face as he visited troops in the likely next Russian target, Kupiansk, just outside Kharkiv. Although there are different political sentiments in the world, he said, different flashes of problems that distract attention, we still, all together, do our utmost to have the world with us, with Ukraine. Words no longer enough, not in Avdivka, and certainly not in the West, where $60 billion in missing aid now means Putin can slowly edge further and further west. I mean, it's incredible to see the, the lack of ammunition and what that means for the troops on the ground. We, we saw the shelling happening just behind you. I mean, I remember you in Harrison last year when it was being fought over at the beginning of the invasion, I guess it was. What's going on where you are now? Yeah, to be honest, in the dark of night here, we aren't entirely clear what the shelling we've been hearing pretty much constantly over the last two or three hours actually means. We know that there are Ukrainian forces on the other side of the river behind me and that the Russians have for months now been trying to make this town liberated from their grasp after it fell in the early days of the invasion uh, two years ago now make life here pretty much unlivable. Uh, drones fly overhead and so people live in the night in darkness to try and be sure they don't become uh, a target and this the daily life, frankly, of Ukrainians is worsening across the front line. We talked about Avdivka in that piece, Anderson. You've got to remember that's just one place that has already fallen. Kupiansk, Zelensky visited today. That's potentially next in the crosshairs. Robotina down in Zaporizhia, a tiny village, a key gain, though, in the summer counter-offensive. That looks vulnerable. Areas around Bakhmut. Remember that from May last year? The Russians took that after a similarly bloody campaign to that which they inflict on Avdivka. Areas around Bakhmut look vulnerable, as do other couple points along the eastern front lines. So a very nervous Ukraine. The lack of Western aid has hit morale, it's hit ammo supplies, and now it seems to be allowing a resurgent Russia to get its foot forward on the front line here. But the noises you may be hearing around me here just emblematic of what Ukrainians are living with daily. This is not as Vice President Kamala Harris hinted in Munich at the weekend, a time for political gamemanship. It's a really serious life and death thing every hour here. Yeah, uh, we're seeing the results of that. Nick, uh, thank you. Be careful. Coming up next tonight, Wisconsin's former top Republican Party official speaking out about the fake elector scheme. He says he and other fake electors were tricked into in Wisconsin by the Trump campaign. And later, new calls for Joe Biden to step aside. David Axrod joins us ahead. This show is supported by BetterHelp Online Therapy. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Maybe you'd go hiking or take a much-needed nap. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? BetterHelp wants you to know that now's the time to choose happiness. And working with a therapist can help you get closer to a more blissful you. Therapists are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions. And they teach productive coping skills, giving you a greater sense of confidence to face your stress and anxiety. With BetterHelp, you get the benefits of in-person therapy. Plus, it's more convenient, more accessible, and more affordable. BetterHelp is connected over 3 million people and counting with licensed therapists, all 100% online. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com AC360 today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash A-C-360. 
Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. Speaking on CNN this weekend, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott refused to say whether he would have certified the 2020 election results if he had been vice president. Another sign, perhaps, that he's auditioning to be the former president's running mate this time. My report this weekend on CBS News' 60 Minutes traces back to that process, which Mike Pence refused to take part in at the end. Specifically to the month after the election, when Democratic and Republican electors representing the candidate who won the popular vote in their states gathered across the country to formally cast electoral votes for president. But in seven states that Joe Biden won, Republican electors got together anyway and they cast phony votes for Donald Trump. They become known as fake electors. And according to federal prosecutors, they were part of a plan to overturn the election that was orchestrated by pro-Trump attorneys with Trump's support. State criminal charges, as you may know, have been filed against fake electors in Georgia, Michigan, and Nevada. Wisconsin's fake electors haven't been charged, and several weeks ago, one of them, Andrew Hitt, an attorney and former chairman of the state Republican Party, agreed to talk to me for a piece I did for 60 Minutes to explain how he says he and Wisconsin's other GOP electors were tricked by the Trump campaign. Here's the piece that aired on 60 Minutes last night. You were head of the Republican Party in Wisconsin. Were you a big Trump supporter? I worked tirelessly for him. I, you know, day and night. Let's put it together for the president of the United States one more time. Oftentimes, phone calls would start by six o'clock in the morning and wouldn't end until 1030 at night. I did everything I possibly could. The Wisconsin Republican Party chairman, Andrew Hitt. Andrew Hitt was often singled out by President Trump at rallies in Wisconsin. Andrew Hitt. Andrew Hitt. How are we doing, Andrew? Going to win this state? Got to win it. But Trump didn't win in Wisconsin. He lost to Joe Biden by some 20,700 votes. The Trump campaign appealed, challenging more than 200,000 absentee ballots on technical grounds in two Democratic counties. If you count the lawful votes, Trump won Wisconsin by a good margin. That was false. What he said was false. The Trump campaign wanted the votes in Dane County and Milwaukee County tossed. Did you support that idea? It wasn't something that I was comfortable with. Dane County and Milwaukee County in Wisconsin are the most liberal counties. The majority of the black population in Wisconsin live in those two counties. Correct. Correct. Personally, you did not believe all those absentee ballots should be thrown out. Well, I voted that way. You know, I voted that way. You didn't think your own vote should be thrown out? No. On November 30th, Wisconsin's Democratic governor, Tony Evers, certified Joe Biden's victory authorizing the state's Democratic electors to gather at the state capitol on December 14th to cast their electoral votes for Biden. But days earlier, Andrew Hitt says he received a call from the Republican National Committee. What was the reach out to you? Can we get a list of the Wisconsin Republican electors? That made you suspicious? It did. I was already concerned that they were going to try to say that the Democratic electors were not proper in Wisconsin because of fraud. You didn't believe there was any No, and I was very involved, obviously, in the election. Pitt was one of 10 Republicans nominated to be an elector if Trump won in Wisconsin. 
On December 4th, he says he was advised by the state GOP's outside legal counsel to gather the other Republican electors on December 14th at the Capitol and, as a contingency, sign a document claiming Trump won the state in case a court overturned the election in Wisconsin. In case the legal arguments that the Trump team is making actually win in court. Right. And I remember asking, how, how can this be that a court overturns the election and just because we don't meet and fill out this paperwork on the 14th that Trump would forfeit Wisconsin? And the legal analysis back was the statute's very clear. The electors have to meet at noon at the Capitol in Wisconsin on December 14th. That morning, the state Supreme Court, in a 4-3 ruling, rejected the Trump campaign's attempt to throw out more than 200,000 votes. But Andrew Hitt says he and the other Republican electors met anyway to cast fake votes because he'd been told the Trump campaign would appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Kenneth Chesbro, a pro-Trump attorney who was an alleged architect of the fake electors' plan, showed up to watch. We got specific advice from our lawyers that these documents were meaningless unless a court said they had meeting. You were deciding to sign this document as an elector and getting the other electors to sign this document based on a court challenge that you yourself don't believe has legitimacy. I wouldn't say it doesn't have legitimacy. That's different than not personally agreeing with it. You personally don't believe that legitimate votes by Wisconsin residents should be tossed out, and yet you are signing a document in support of a lawsuit which is alleging just that. And if I didn't do that, and the court did throw out those votes, it would have been solely my fault that Trump wouldn't have won Wisconsin. Ah, beautiful kids, Andrew. Good, good. I'm going to blame you, Andrew, if they don't do it. Can you imagine the repercussions on myself, my family, if it was me, Andrew Hitt, who prevented Donald Trump from winning Wisconsin. You're saying you were scared? Absolutely. Scared of Trump supporters in your state? It was not a safe time. If my lawyer is right, and the whole reason Trump loses Wisconsin is because of me, I would be scared to death. Signing legal documents of such consequence that you don't believe in and you don't believe the underlying reason for the documents, it's, I mean, it's not exactly a profile in courage. No. How do you feel about that now? I mean, terrible. I, if I knew what I knew now, I wouldn't have done it. It was kept from us that there was this alternate scheme, alternate motive. That alleged alternate scheme is a prominent part of special counsel Jack Smith's indictment of the former president. Charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States. According to Smith, what began as a legal strategy in Wisconsin evolved into a corrupt plan involving six other states as well. Donald J. Trump of the state of Florida, number of votes 11. Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. He said we can't enter. Where some of the fake electors couldn't convince police to let them into the Capitol. More electors. More electors. The electors are already here. They've been checked in. Jack Smith cites this December 6th memo written by Ken Chesbro, detailing ways 
the Trump campaign can prevent Biden from amassing 270 electoral votes on January 6. Smith alleges the multi-state scheme was designed to create a fake controversy and position the vice president to supplant legitimate electors with Trump's fake electors and certify him as president. By January 4th, according to internal emails, some in the Trump campaign were panicking. They believed the fake electors documents from Michigan and Wisconsin hadn't arrived in Vice President Mike Pence's Senate office. Your colleague texted you, freaking Trump idiots want someone to fly original elector papers to the Senate president. You wrote, this is just nuts. What was nuts about it? I mean, we have the certification coming on the 6th. Um, how, how do you not have the paperwork? I mean, you've said that you only went along with this plan to preserve Trump's candidacy in the event of a court ruling. January 4th, just two days before January 6th, did you really think that was still possible? Well, remember, the Wisconsin Supreme Court had been appealed. And so January 4th, it seemed like, yeah, it's possible that a, a much more conservative United States Supreme Court could overturn a 4-3 decision. To get the paperwork to Washington, they picked Alicia Gunther, then a 23-year-old law school student working part-time for Wisconsin's Republican Party. I was on break from law school um, and wanted to make some extra money for, to pay for books and worked for the party for my month off of school. So on January 4th, I got a call from the executive director of the Republican Party of Wisconsin since I was helping out at the time. What did you think when you got the text? At first, I didn't know what it was, and then he followed up and asked, you know, that the Trump campaign wanted these papers flown out to D.C. because they had gotten lost in the mail. Gunther says she picked up the papers here at the state party headquarters and on January 5th flew to Washington. So this is the email. She showed us her email chain with Ken Chesbro and the Trump campaign senior advisor, Mike Roman. Explaining that I should only give the documents to Ken Chesbro. So, um, and then they asked me to meet up with him outside the Trump Hotel. I mean, it sounds very secretive. Yeah, I thought that that email was pretty odd and dramatic. And you knew what was happening on January 6th, in terms of the, the certification of the vote. I don't know if I was very tuned into that, truly, because... I thought that a court of law would have need to, needed to overturn the election for those documents to be used. Did you know what Chesborough looked like? So he had actually sent me a selfie. So he, I he sent you know, a selfie? Yes. So that you would know it was him? Yeah. Can I see it? Yeah. She still has the photo saved on her phone. That's, that's Ken Chesborough. Mm-hmm. What did he say to you? He kind of took a dramatic step back and looked at me and said, you might have just made history. Ken Chesbro told investigators he delivered the Wisconsin documents to Capitol Hill. The next day, on January 6, he can be seen in videos outside the Capitol near conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. And I now want to look even more deeply at the fake elector scheme. According to the January 6 Select Committee, an aide to Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson tried to arrange to get the fake elector's slates to Vice President Pence. And I hope Mike is going to do the right thing. I hope so. I hope so. Because if Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. But Pence's aide refused, texting, do not give that to him, according to the committee. When the Senate chamber had to be evacuated, the real electoral votes in these boxes were taken to safety. And when Congress resumed, they were returned into the House chamber.
pursuant to Senate concurrent resolution. Vice President Pence announced the election results and closed the session at 3.44 a.m. January 7th. The Supreme Court ultimately declined to hear the Trump campaign's lawsuit in Wisconsin. What do you think about Donald Trump continuing to claim that the 2020 election was stolen? It, I mean, it wasn't stolen. It wasn't stolen in Wisconsin. This past December, Andrew Hitt and Wisconsin's other Republican electors settled a civil lawsuit against them by some of the state's Democratic electors. They admitted they signed a document that was used as part of an attempt to improperly overturn the 2020 presidential election results. Hitt resigned as chairman of the Wisconsin Republican Party in August 2021. He's cooperated with the January 6th committee. Using our electors in ways that we weren't told about. Um, and we wouldn't have supported. And he says he's also cooperated with federal prosecutors. He maintains he and the other fake electors in Wisconsin were tricked. Whenever anybody sees our text messages, our emails, our documents, they understand, they know, they can, their conclusion is we were tricked. The January 6th committee saw it. Jack Smith specifically in his indictment refers to some of the electors were tricked. That was us. The former president is known to watch 60 Minutes. If he's watching, what would you want to say to him? I would say that this country needs to move forward. That we need a leader who is, tackles serious problems and serious issues that this country faces. And we need faith in our institutions again and the next president of the United States needs to do that. And in your opinion, that's not him? It is not him. Correct. Coming up, calls from President Biden to step aside for a younger campaigner now coming from a popular New York Times columnist, David Axrod, who just a few months ago raised similar concerns. Join me next to discuss that and the latest polling showing nearly half of registered voters think President Biden will be replaced as the Democratic nominee. Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The question of how President Biden's campaign should handle concerns about his age became more pressing over the weekend after a prominent progressive New York Times columnist made his case for why Biden should not run again. This is Ezra Klein. I'm convinced he is able to do the job of the presidency, that he is sharp in meetings, that he is sound in his judgments. I cannot point you, even now, to a moment where Biden faltered in the presidency because his age had slowed him. But here's the thing. I can point you to moments where he is faltering in his campaign for the presidency because his age is slowing him. 
this distinction between the job of the presidency and the job of running for the presidency keeps getting muddied, including by Biden himself. So yes, I think Biden, as painful as this is, should find his way to stepping down as a hero, that the party should help him find his way to that, to being the thing that he said he would be in 2020, the bridge to the next generation of Democrats. Klein's assessment comes shortly after a poll from Monmouth University asked how likely it was that Biden would be replaced as the Democratic nominee for president. 48% said very likely or somewhat likely. 50% said not too likely or not at all likely. Joined now by David Axelrod, chief strategist for the Obama campaign, uh, Biden campaign. So David, does the White House care what Ezra Klein or any other op-ed columnist thinks? Should they care? Well, I think the president probably cares. I think he reads it. I'm sure it irritates him. I know I've irritated him when I've raised this issue uh, in the past. But I'll tell you what, that Monmouth poll didn't poll me, because if they had polled me, I would have said, no, I think Joe Biden's going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party. I said last November uh, a few things. I said, if you gave me Biden's record and took 10 years off of him, I would have no concerns about uh, this election, uh, but that I thought age was an issue, and that screams through every poll. Uh, but the last thing I said was, if Joe Biden wants to be the nominee of the Democratic Party, he will be the nominee of the Democratic Party because there is tremendous loyalty among uh, a lot of the party to the president. I think there's a lot of respect for the president. Uh, and uh, so I, I think that's where we are right now. I think only there's the, the idea that some delegation of party elders are going to come and visit him at the White House and uh, dis- and and persuade him to step down is a is a fantasy. First of all, that's not the way politics works anymore. We're not, you know, in another century. Uh, secondly, that belies the fact of who Joe Biden is. Joe Biden is a guy who has spent his whole life uh, kind of coming up from uh, nowhere uh, to proving to people, uh, you know, that he can that, that he's going to hack it, that he, he has a uh, a chip on his shoulder and he deserves to. Uh, he's accomplished a great deal. Uh, and his attitude is always people underestimate me and they're, I'm sure his attitude is they're underestimating me now. Uh, so I, I just, you know, I read Ezra's piece. He said a lot of things that I had said uh, previously, but uh, I don't think that's where we're going to end up. It's interesting, the argument Ezra Klein is making that he can't point, you know, that in meetings, Joe Biden is is sharp and making sound decisions and his judgment is is sound. But just in the the running for the presidency, he's had stumbles, which I guess is meaning in public speaking and things like that. Do you think that's a I mean, do you think that's a valid argument? Well, I, I, I think it's true. I mean, I, I listen, uh, Anderson, uh the body of work that he's done, the things that he's accomplished, uh, the the bills that he's passed on a bipartisan basis uh, against all odds, the 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 coalitions he's forged globally, and so on, those things don't happen by accident. He's clearly doing the job, and you speak to people around him, and they say that. Uh, you know, they say he's sharp in meetings and so on. He is not good in front of a camera anymore. I mean, that's pretty clear, and he has trouble uh, with that, and that's how most Americans see him. And worse than that, uh, that's how social media sees him. They, they, you know, he can he can give a brilliant speech and have nine bad seconds, and that becomes a it's part of the meme, and that gets uh, you know circulated to millions of people on TikTok, particularly younger people, and that's you know that has been a real uh, problem for him. So I, you know, I I do accept that he has 
that he has governed uh, very, very competently. And Anderson, people, you, you spent some time with him for your podcast. Uh, you know, I'm sure he was very cogent when he, yeah, uh, he spoke was. with you. But, 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 but how people, uh, how people see him on the tube and how they see him in their social media feeds is 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 fueling this, and uh, that is. Uh, sadly, a reality of American politics now and one that he's and his campaign are going to have to cope with. Yeah. David Axelrod, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up. Good to see you. Why is George Santos now suing Jimmy Kimmel? Details on that ahead. George Santos has been grift that keeps on giving for late night talk show hosts. Now he's suing ABC's Jimmy Kimmel. Santos says that Kimmel's team deceived him into creating videos on the video message platform Cameo and then improperly broadcast them on air or on social media. In essence, Santos appears offended that a person would pretend to be someone they are not <laughs> and then reap the rewards of that deception, something, of course, he may be very familiar with. Here's an example of one of the fake letters that Kimmel's team wrote to Santos. George, please congratulate my mom, Brenda, on the successful cloning of her beloved schnauzer, Adolf. She and Dr. Hounschnaufer went through a lot of dogs in the trial runs, but they finally got it to stick. Tell her to give Adolf a big belly rub for me. Will Santos say it? Yes! Hey, Brenda. I wanted to congratulate you on successfully cloning your beloved schnauzer, Adolf. I know it was a lot of trials and tribulations, but you finally did it. Now you get to enjoy Adolf and be happy. So give him a belly rub for me. Mwah. Mwah to you too. Joined now by our senior chief reporter, Harry Enten. Wow. How many uh, of these cameo videos has Santos actually done? He's, Apparently, he's, he seems to do them anywhere. That seemed to be like in a wind tunnel around the street. I don't know. It looked almost like a, like where you expect like a hostage video to be taken yeah, or, or something. Like in an Uber. I don't know. Maybe, you know, a late night Uber. Maybe he prefers Lyft. I don't know. Look, he's he sold about uh, 1,200 of them. And he's, they're selling them for about $350 a pop. That's up. From where it was originally at 75. And the good news about all of this, Anderson, is look, here's some other people. I oh, think okay. that's. So, I, so, so Santos is $350. Kevin O'Leary. Yes, Mr. Wonderful. Who's he? Shark Tank. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. $1,500. You got Ice Tea at 600 You got wow. Don Johnson, not Dwayne Johnson, from Miami Vice. Okay. He's at 500 My uncle Neil Sadaka. I just learned that your uncle is Neil Sadaka. I went to school with Neil Sadaka's son. Mark. Mark. Yeah, yeah. Was, he was a lovely kid. He was a lovely kid. Yeah. I, I, he said, I remember Neil Sadaka. I remember going to Neil Sadaka's house, I think. Oh, uh, the one on Park Avenue? Yeah. Was yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Park Avenue, yeah. yeah. I think it was like on West 85th. He's now I think I might have gone to Mark's bar mitzvah. That seems like a possibility, yeah. maybe. I don't, yeah, I don't he know. He was great. You know, bar mitzvahs back in the day. You I had no idea he was your uncle. Neil Sadaka was huge. He was huge. Yeah. Laughter in the rain. Sure. Love will keep us together. Totally. Breaking up is hard to do. Yes. Bad blood. Yes. A slew of these things. Maybe what we can do is we can get Uncle Neil to do a cameo for the two of us and wish <laughs> us well on AC360. What do you think about that? Uh, sure. Uh, that okay. could be a big Passover gift for you, right? Are you right? going to pay for that or am I going to pay for that? I think uh, maybe we could ask uh, Charlie. Maybe Charlie Moore, the EP, can pay for that. You know, he, he sent me to Buffalo, so maybe we can so do one of these. Santos has also mocked Republicans over uh, failing initially to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary. He even posted this picture of the failed resolution results saying, quote, miss me yet. How much does the GOP actually miss his vote? I mean, given how small the majority is right now, I think they they miss him a lot. You know, if Santos was still in Congress, they could uh, Mike Johnson could afford to lose three Republican votes and hold on to his majority. Now it's down to just two. 
So we're talking a Congress that has passed very few pieces of legislation. In fact, it's historically passed few pieces of legislation. I think they've only passed 39 laws and bills uh, that were actually became in a law. So if Santos was there, maybe it could be helpful to Mike Johnson. And I would expect him to continue to taunt Republicans if they continue to have trouble passing bills and resolutions. Mm, I think you should move along. Yeah, no, ooh, very nice. I just think you should. Okay. Uh, Harry Anton, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uncle Neil. Your uncle. uncle Neil, maybe he'll call in afterwards. I would love that. There we go. Still ahead on this. He was, he's so talented. He I was. Mean, yeah. Well, he still is. He still is. We'll get the cameo. Still ahead on this President's Day. Former President Jimmy Carter make, marks a year in hospice care, defying expectations again. What his family is saying about his spirit. On this President's Day weekend, America's longest living former president, Jimmy Carter, is marking one year in hospice care at his home in Plains, Georgia. Over the past year, former President Carter turned 99. He also lost his wife of 77 years, Rosalind. Uh, Rosalind Carter died in November when she was 96 years old, just days after entering hospice uh, care herself with dementia. The 39th president has defied the odds by surviving metastatic brain cancer, liver cancer, and other health scares. His grandson said in a statement Sunday, we have no expectations for his body, but we know that his spirit is as strong as ever. We wish President Carter and his family well. Happy President's Day. That's it for us. The news continues. I'll see you tomorrow. The source of Caitlin Collins starts now.